Fights On is produced with commercial consideration from Cubic Corporation. Since 1972, Cubic's ACMI has been a cornerstone of air combat range instrumentation. Cubic's LVC will expand that capability into the future across multi-domain operations. Truth in Training, Cubic LVC. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Welcome back to Fights On. Last episode, we sat down with Navy pilot Brian Sunshine Sinclair to discuss earning wings of gold in Navy flight school. Today, we're going down low with retired Army helicopter pilot Brian Casmo Harris to learn all about Army flight school, the OH-58 Kiowa Warrior, AH-64 Apache, and how the Army integrates aviation into ground combat. So hang on, because the fight's on, Hua. Hovering in and of itself is the absolute hardest thing. You are clawing at the sky. So I called my crew chiefs over, you know, blades are spinning and stuff. I said, hey, take that missile off. You know, it's a hundred pound missile. And trying to find that good sweet spot between uh, over torquing the hell out of the aircraft or just banging it against the ground. Here. The aggressors are entering the airspace at this time. Roger, Tario, I've got one, and he's in a left-hand turn. Affirm, you're about to get guns. Box one on the inside, nose down. Turn in, fight's on. Hey, welcome back to Fight's On. I'm your host, Scott. Today, we're talking Army aviation with Brian Casmo harris Brian is a retired Army aviator. Welcome, Brian. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Casmo, uh, as I'll call you, has a pretty interesting and varied background in his military career. And without further ado, I just want to kick over to you, Casmo, and let you tell us about how you got into Army aviation, what came before that, and the training pipeline. So take it away. Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, I joined the Army, gosh, back in 1998, I want to say, 99. Uh, so I commissioned through ROTC. Uh, through a military junior college of all things and went into the guard. So going into the guard kind of forced me to choose what was available, right? You couldn't just kind of pick anything. Uh, so I ended up in armor because there was a, a cavalry unit. So I ended up going uh, going to school and becoming an armor officer, uh, M1 tanks, and uh, did that for a couple of years in the guard while I finished up my degree because it was, a, again, a military junior college. And uh, once I completed my bachelor's degree, Came on active duty and uh, continued to be an armor officer a couple of years. Uh, did uh, a mortar platoon and uh, a headquarters company. And, uh, you know, I'd always wanted to fly. So this was about 2002. You know, I started kind of questioning my life because at this point <laughs> I'd already been a company commander. And I was, gosh, I was 23, I want to say. Like I commissioned so early that by the time I was 23, I was already a commander. Uh, I had like, you know, 150 soldiers and I was just, you know, just dog tired at the end of the day for no reason. You know what I mean? Like you just mm-hmm. had one of those administratively emotional burden jobs. And I was like, man, I'm too young to feel this old. So I wanted to do something and get back into why I joined the army, which was really just kind of like chase bad guys and blow stuff up. And of course, September 11th had happened. And so I hadn't been able to kind of, you know, get in the fight, which of course, every 23, 24 year old wants to do. And uh, just by uh, sort of accident, uh, I met these these various Army aviators. I met an Apache pilot who was stationed at Fort Knox, where I was at. 
Um, and then I met a, a retired Cobra pilot and just talking to these guys and starting looking at options and things. And again, at this point, I was a captain in the army and, uh, you know, this warrant officer, I had lunch with him and he, he was like, well, you could just go warrant. And I'd never thought of that, you know, as, as an option. So I did try to branch transfer, meaning going from the armor branch as a captain to the aviation branch as a captain. And, uh, I, I didn't get, uh, selected. It was very, you know, it's a very small pool. They only grab a couple guys. Um, and they, they didn't pick me and they said, well, Hey, you know, you got a really good packet. Try again in six months. But by then I'd already had the bug, you know, I'd already just like thinking about, wow, this could actually happen. So I ended up, uh, doing exactly what that guy had suggested, resigned my commission and, uh, and, and became a warrant officer. So I left, uh, Fort Knox, went to Fort Rucker, which is where the army's, uh, flight school is. And, uh, yeah, wa- walked into a building as a captain and walked out as a warrant officer one. <laughs> And walked straight over to flight school, and these, you know, and of course, there's a pipeline there because typically the warrant officers come out of the warrant officer uh, uh, candidate school, and then they get funneled over to the flight school. Well, I just show up out of nowhere, and uh, these guys are like, well, who are you? And so I just <laughs> hand them my paperwork and uh, uh, said, okay, you know, I guess you'll start in two weeks in flight school. So that's how I got started uh, into flight school, and that was, uh, yeah, that was uh, summer of 2003. Okay, let's. Let's fill the listener in a little bit about warrant officers. That's something we haven't talked about in the series so far. Because in in the Navy, a warrant officer uh, fills a pretty specific role, and it's very different from that of the Army. So talk to me about the differences in the Army between a commissioned officer and a warrant officer. Sure. Uh, it, and it is a strange thing, and it's sort of morphed over time. Um, so as you look at the history of the warrant officer, and I'm just kind of summarizing it, but you used to have a specific branch, the warrant officer branch, and that's where all of these guys and gals, you know, belong to, and they were managed at this at this level, uh, all within that branch. Coupled with the fact that aviation in the army was not a branch unto itself up until the '80s. Um, so if you think back to Vietnam, you had all these guys flying Hueys and Cobras and everything. They weren't even, you know, technically army aviators from a standpoint of having a specific branch, like you do the infantry and the armor and artillery. They were infantry, armor, artillery, logisticians. They were all these different guys who basically it's almost like an additional duty. You know, they went to flight school and they got checked off and then they would go do a tour or two flying and then they'd go back to being an infantry guy or whatever. And so across the board in the army, you had these people called warrant officers and they were not commissioned, but they weren't NCOs. So they were sort of this in between. And because they didn't have the same sort of career path as all those others, they kind of stayed in their, their lane a lot more. And so they became real technical experts. And so you have, you know, the maintenance guys and you got the logisticians and then you had the aviators. So again, the eighties, you, you created the aviation branch, uh, but you still had the warrant officers belonging to the warrant officer branch. And it wasn't until, I want to say it was 2003, 2004, is when I was still in flight school, that the warrant officer branch itself went away. And they took all the warrants and put them into those parent branches. So the aviation warrant officers became uh, aviation, you know, belonging to aviation branch. The logisticians went over to the logistics branch and things like that. Uh, but to kind of dumb it down, I guess you could say that they're, they're sort of this in-between officer. Uh, you know, you, you salute them and call them sir, ma'am or whatever. Uh, but they're above NCOs, but they're, you know, technically below commissioned officers. Uh, they can sometimes fill command billets. I've seen warrant officers commanding companies because there weren't enough captains to fill the job. 
So they're in the sort of weird realm. And then, like you said, in, in other branches, you really don't see them doing things like aviation. You see them in very technical fields. Uh, in the Army, you see them not only in the technical side, but you also see them in the, the trigger puller side, if you will. You see them uh, as pilots, but also in the special forces. You'll see those guys on the teams uh, as an advisor to the, the ODA commander, the, the captain that's running those those 12-man teams. Um, so yeah, a warrant officer, it's a, it's a really interesting job, you know, like anything else, you're, you're kind of doing the same thing over and over, which sounds great when you're flying, you know, you're just, you're just a flyer, you know, you're just a pilot and you're just out doing stuff, but eventually you'll, you'll kind of move on to, to higher ranks in the warrant officer corps and you'll start to, to do other things at the unit level and, and work at the squadron battalion headquarters level, brigade level, things like that. Okay. So is it, is it fair though, to say that warrant officers with that different career path, uh, which is fascinating because that really helps explain how this came about in the Army for Army Aviation. Are they generally getting more stick time over the course of their career than a commissioned officer because they don't necessarily have the same wickets they have to jump through to get career progression? Absolutely. I, I would say, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely zero data to back this up. I would say that Army warrant officers get more stuck, stick time than any other pilot in any branch of the military. And I say that having known, you know, fighter pilots in other communities and, and talking to them and asking them how many hours they have. And they tell me and sometimes I'm kind of surprised, like, wow, really? Only that much? Uh, whereas as a warrant officer, like I said, up until you get to a higher rank of warrant officer, which could be years and years and years. I mean, what else is there to do except for the most part fly? Um, so those guys are they're constantly in the seat. Um, they're constantly in that position where they can be out there flying. And even when they do get bumped up to, a you know, battalion squadron headquarters level, they're, they're still such a commodity because they're a pilot in command. They're an air mission commander. They're still flying their tail off, you know, especially when you're deployed. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Those guys a hundred percent get, uh, much more stick time than the commissioned officers, uh, commissioned guys. It's really dependent one. It's dependent on how much they want to do it. Um, which is kind of a ding on guys who don't really make it a priority. Uh, but two, it's also based on your position. So, you know, for instance, when I was a, a company commander uh, or troop commander, I made it a priority of mine to fly, um, you know, still do my administrative side. But then when you move up to staff, you're not going to have the capability to come down. Or in my case, you know, I got sent to another post, uh, post command. I got sent to another base to, uh, to teach. Well, there was no aircraft there that I flew. So, you know, that was several years of not flying. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, absolutely. Warrant officers get a, a ton of stick time. Okay. And then is it the case that a warrant officer doesn't need a college degree? Is that correct? Or is that changed? No, that's correct. Uh, as far as I'm still tracking, you know, it's been a while since I've been a warrant, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that they, they do not require one. Um, I, th I think it helps later on as far as getting promotions, but I, I don't believe that there's any requirement, uh, even at the later ranks, but there's certainly no requirement to, to get in the door and start flying, which is another draw for, for people because, you know, you don't have to go through an ROTC program. You don't have to go to West Point or something like that. You know, there are guys that literally, you know, essentially get hired by the army to become warrant officers, right? So they go through basic training. And then they go to the Warren Officer Candidate School, and then they start flight school. So we, we call those guys uh, street deceit guys, you know, and, and I've worked with a few of those over the time, over the years. Okay. Yeah, just wanted to throw that out there because over the course of the series, we've, we know that we've got some young aspiring aviators out there and just want to make sure they know all the different options and all the different paths because, you know, that is enticing. The idea of, hey, I can, you're 18, you're like, I can just jump right into this. 
Yeah, and and it's not um you know, it's not the end of the road either, right? So you could you could get into army aviation at a very young age, like you said, you know, you could probably 18, 19 years old. And then after a few years, if you decide that you do want to be a commission guy, you know, for whatever reason, you know, th- th- there's still options there to, to be able to do that as well. I've, I've seen guys do that. I've seen guys go from, uh, heck, I saw a guy go from a, a CW2 aviator, went to OCS and became an infantry officer, you know, so there's there's other options uh, to, to continue to, to change ranks and, and or you can do as like I do and just kind of flip flop back and forth. So. Yeah, fair enough. So so you traded in your uh, captain's bars, became a warrant officer, and as you said, sort of went across the street and started learning how to fly. And we've talked before on previous episodes about the Navy and the Air Force and how they train, but the Army is a lot different. So talk to me about how the Army addresses aviation training. Yeah, so and it it is different, and I think it has a lot to do with with the scale of of how many aviators that the army is putting through. And I don't I don't have any numbers, but you know I know later we'll talk about the size of units. But I think that'll it'll start to make a lot more sense when you when you talk about scale. But flight school is just like all the others. You know, it's a ton of work. Um, it's it's not just physical. It's it's emotional. It's it's time. Now things have changed obviously since I went through, but they're they're kind of roughly the same. Uh, but I'll speak more about what it was when I went through, which you had a, a primary phase, which as I recall is about ten weeks or so, and we would learn on a Bell two hundred six. So the difference here too, in all the other branches, they seem to all learn fixed wing first, and then you know some of you have been chosen, and now you're going to be helicopter guys. We don't do that. We go straight into the helicopters, hmm. um, and so guys will learn. Uh, now they fly, we call them LUHs, but back then we flew basically just a Bell 206. So we would do that for about 10 weeks, as I recall, and that was called primary. And that's just where you're learning how to basically fly the aircraft, learn how to hover, learn how to auto-rotate and all that good stuff. Uh, and then you would move into the instrument phase, which, as I recall, was about eight weeks. I think what they've done since then, they, they sort of merged primary and instruments into one thing because when we went through primary, you had the same instructor pilot. Then you went over to instruments and you got a new instructor pilot. And when you're in the instruments phase, you'll do some simulator time doing instruments and then you'll do uh, the actual flying, you know, hopefully in the clouds if, if there's any clouds around. And then uh, and then during after that or right at the end of that is when you get selected for whatever your airframe is, is going to be. Uh, and then that, depending on what you get selected for, and I, and I say that because it's really based on the order of merit list, which is established, you know, from the, from the day you start flight school, everything you do matters, right? Every grade you make, every PT test, every check ride, all that stuff starts collating into these points. And then when it's time to pick what you want to fly and things of that nature, now the order of merit list, uh, uh matters. So I'll back up and talk a little bit about primary and just kind of go through the widgets if, if that's all right, if that's what yeah. you want. Yeah, please do. Okay. So essentially going through the first two phases, the primary instruments, is is, is hell on earth sometimes uh, because it's such long days. We would have either a morning or an afternoon flight line, and that was essentially, you know, you're going out to the, uh, to the airfield. Now, what I went through... Uh, you know, it's always harder when you went through, not for the new guys, but when I went through, it was harder because we couldn't park at the airfield. Apparently these days now they just let them drive out to the airfield, but we would have to park on main, on main post of Fort Rucker, get on a bus and go out there. So that added another, you know, 30, 45 minutes yeah. of, of dealing with all that stuff. 
So morning flight line, I want to say we'd get out there about 6, 6.30 in the morning. So, you know, you back that up and everything. You're getting up at 4 a.m. so you can you can make it to flight line. You go out to the airfield. You meet up with your instructor pilots. You would have what we call a stick buddy. And so it's just, you know, you two and your instructor pilot. And they would always do what we call daily questions. You know, you'd have homework essentially the night before. And then the, the flight commander, who was the main IP, the instructor pilot, you know, he would randomly call on people and you'd have to give your answers and all this stuff. And it was just forcing you to get back in the books. And remember, this was 2003. We didn't have the search function, you know, on PDFs. You <laughs> right. know, we had yeah. 700 page manuals that, you know, they would just ask you this random question and you're digging through the 700 page manual. Nowadays, you know, when I went back to the Apache course, we had PDFs like, this is easy. Why are yeah. we still doing this? Control F, let's go. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you get done in like 10 minutes. But back then it was, you know, it was a couple hours of work. It felt like. So you'd get through all that and then they'd tell you what you're going to be working on that day. And of course, you already knew that. But uh, and then you'd head out to the aircraft, do all your pre-flight and you'd go fly. So the way we would work it with the stick buddies, we had these what we call stage fields. And they were all these little tiny, just little tiny heliports all over southern Alabama. And depending on what stage of training you're at, you would go to whatever stage field. So you'd, uh, you'd pack up, you'd fly out um, and leaving Cairns Airfield. I mean, you can imagine like I don't know how many at least a hundred helicopters out there and so it's just it's like Atlanta airport you know everyone's just taking off at the same time it's really busy uh and you finally you take these corridors you get out to the stage field what you typically do is land the student not flying he's sitting in the back we'd kick him out he'd go into like a little waiting area and you'd go do your maneuvers with the instructor pilot and then eventually you'd come back and then you guys would swap out maybe you'd get some gas uh during that and then they would go out, do some maneuvers, come back, pick you up, and then you'd fly back. So that's your morning. Then you would get bussed back onto main post, and you'd have you know an hour or so to, to eat lunch. And then you would start academics. And we did uh, you know everything. You know, learn how the engine works, learn about weather, just learn the rules of being a pilot. You know, I mean, you're taking guys who have zero experience with aviation in any way, shape, or form, teaching them everything they need to know to not only be a, a private pilot you know, a commercial rated pilot, a military pilot, you know, all that stuff. So uh, it was a ton of classes. And so you'd get home, you know, and then because you did flight line in the morning, well, you didn't do PT and the army loves PT. So guess what? We had afternoon PT. So we would have about 430 in the afternoon. We would have PT for the morning flight line guys. And uh, of course, you know, by then we're dog tired. We'd show up and we'd act like we're going on a run. We'd jump into the woods and hang out you know, for <laughs> 30 minutes and then we'd come back. You know, I can only imagine Southern Alabama in the summer, 430, 1630. Yeah. Great time for PT. Yeah, that's absolutely. Yeah. We were all very motivated. <laughs> um, yeah, it was awesome. So we would do that for about a week. And of course, you know, you get home, try to live your life a little bit. You know, I was married at the time, didn't have kids you know, eat dinner and stuff and you study. But I mean, I, I remember staying up till probably, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night studying and then getting up at 4 a.m. the next morning and, and starting it all over again. Uh, so you do that for about a week and then you'd rotate to uh, afternoon flight line. And so it, it was a little bit more what you can think of. Show up for PT, go to classes, go to the afternoon flight line, get home, you know, rinse and repeat. So that was our schedule for, like I said, 10 weeks for primary. I want to say eight weeks for instruments. And of course, by the time you got to the end of instruments, you're kind of running out of classes to do. And then you get selected for your aircraft. Now, when I went through, uh, it was not a uh, it was not a show <laughs> as far as um, uh, getting selected for aircraft. Now, it's, apparently it's a big to do. They have like kind of like a, a ball 
and they they make big announcements. When I went through, it was a dude with a clipboard. <laughs> he came in, he came into the room, and he said, "Okay, we have six Blackhawks, three Kiowas, four Chinooks, and one Apache, or something like that." And he would just go down the list and say, "Okay, Bill, you're you're number one. What do you want?" And it just went down the line like that. So I think I was number three on the OML. So I, I knew I was going to get whatever I wanted. Uh, and I wanted Kiowas. So I, so I managed to get that. I do remember the one guy who did not want Apaches. Uh, he got Apaches because <laughs> it was <laughs> one slot. And he was the last guy on the OML. And he was not happy. Uh, but generally, pe- people got what they want. But, you know, the rumor mill runs through, as I'm sure it does all the other flight schools of, you know, we'd be going through uh, primary and instruments and, and you'd hear like, oh, I heard our class is going to be all Apaches because they ran out of, you know, they don't have enough people or, you know, you start hearing all these rumor mills. But at the end of the day, it's always going to be the needs of the military and, and yep. whatever is available. So you'd select aircraft, finish up your instrument phase. I think most of us were finished and then a few of us didn't. And then uh, and then we went to something called BNAV. I'm not sure if they still do this anymore, but it's called Basic Navigation. And this was a two-week course where you went out to yet another airfield and we flew these old Kiowa, uh, what we call Alpha Chucks. And these are old like Vietnam era mm-hmm. uh, Kiowas that don't have any sensors or anything. It's just, you know, it's basically just a helicopter. It's just, you know, a Bell 206 painted green. And, uh, you know, these old grizzled Vietnam vets, because that was a great time of going through in 2003. All the instructor pilots were all old Vietnam guys. You know, they just completely unflappable you know they're teaching you how to hover which is not easy to learn and you know you're you're putting this aircraft in situations that you're positive it's going to crash and they're just sitting there like you know nothing doing you know they've they've seen it all but you head out to bnav and essentially you just learn how to navigate you don't even fly the aircraft you learn how to to plot things on a map and 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 you know recage your brain to moving at 90 knots above the trees and identifying these types of roads and these, you know, this creek bed. And now I have to turn to this heading and stuff. And you essentially just, you know, he would give you a route and say, hey, I want you to plan for these locations. And then you guys would take off the next day and you would lead him. You know, you'd be like, okay, turn to heading 100 and fly yeah. for five minutes, you know, and you're sitting there clocking it. You know, you're like, okay, make your speed 90 knots and you're clocking it. So you're doing all this old school navigation. Uh, so we do that for about two weeks. And then we moved on to our advanced aircraft. Uh, and this is where the timings kind of get really screwed up. Because if you were a Blackhawk guy, I want to say theirs was only about six weeks. Um, Chinooks, I think, were six or eight weeks. Kiowas, as I recall, was about 16 weeks. And I think Apaches was about 18 weeks. So you're getting right back into the same old rhythm of an early flight line and academics. Because now you're completely learning the systems of the new aircraft. And... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's starting over for scratch. And so you're learning all about the engines, which was great for us who went Kiowa because the Kiowa is really just a bell 206, like, like souped up on heroin, you know, like it's just a, a, (laughs) a, a better, you know, it's got kind of the same components. I mean, most of the emergency procedures or the limitations were the same, you know, the engine Mm -hmm. limits and the oil limits, everything was the same. So you're like, okay, I've already got that memorized. So that made that a lot easier. But you still had to learn all new systems. And, of course, you know, it was a glass cockpit. It had, you know, thermal imaging systems. It had weapon systems. So you're going through all these these academics. And then you just go through different phases. And it almost kind of repeats itself. So you had the primary phase where you just learned how to fly the aircraft, how to how to crash in a controlled manner, and how to fly with the hydraulics off and, and things like that. 
And then you'd move on to, you know, night because we'd never flown at night up until this point, which I think they have changed. I think now uh, during that primary phase in uh, basic flight school, they do a little bit of night training. But we would go out and learn how to fly unaided, meaning you had nothing. Uh, and then we'd fly with goggles. And of course, all throughout this, you have little check rides to, to advance you along. And then uh, and then you get into the weapons. Um, so the Kiowa in particular, uh, we carried uh, Hellfires, a 50 caliber machine gun, and um, 2.75 inch rockets. We did have stingers, but literally like the class before me is when they stopped teaching how to how to use the stingers. They were taking it out of the inventory. We'd still fly some that had stinger launchers on, but you know we never learned how to use them. Sure. So we go through the weapons phase, and about that time is when they kind of ran out of classes, and that's when flight school really became fun because all you had was flight line, you know, and you just work half a day, go in and fly for an hour and a half, and then go home. You know, it wasn't wasn't hard, but you always kept that um, stick buddy. Uh, dynamic going on so you were always kind of showing up and and uh, riding out to the stage field watching guys do crash bangs and, and everything and then and then swapping out with them and then we'd go do gunnery towards the end you know we actually got to go shoot uh, rockets and 50 cal we would do simulated hellfire because of course you know those things are you know hundred thousand dollars a piece or, right. or whatever um, but you, but you could set up the system to, to go through the motions and they'd have a what they call a captive flight trainer so it's basically a hellfire without the warhead, you know, without all the propulsion. It just had the the the, the seeker head essentially. So you'd get all the symbology in this in the aircraft, so you'd know that you're doing it right or wrong, and, and learn all that jazz. And yeah, that was essentially it for the for the Kiowa track. And at that point, for us, we were essentially done. We had to go through the warrant officer basic course. Uh, which was only a couple weeks, and, and integrated with that, we had like a seer type training, uh, right. which was yeah. and it was really just survival. It wasn't um, evasion and, and recovery or uh, you know resistance. Uh, that morphed, so they started to integrate seer, what they call seer C, which is the level that you always hear about. You know, guys getting slapped and captured right. and you know, you know, not tortured. That came along later, and very wisely, I think they they ended up putting that at the very front of flight school. And, uh, and it makes a lot of sense because you think of it because people did get hurt. You know, I mean, Sear is, you know, they don't try to hurt you, but they hurt you. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and of course, sort of when you're evading, yeah. yeah, just the very nature of it and, you know, running around the woods and the dark getting chased and all this stuff. You know, I mean, I almost rolled an ankle pretty bad, uh, but guys are getting hurt. Well, you just spent a year training this guy how to fly a helicopter, spending how much money and time on this guy. And then he gets hurt in Sear. That's it. He's done. So they put it at the front eventually, which I think is a really good move. And so it's like, okay, you survived, so you're now you can go to flight school. Um, but for us at the time, we didn't have that built up. They were starting to build the system. And uh, it was a few years later when I came back for the captain's course is when they, they finally caught us and said, oh, okay, you, you guys hadn't done SEER yet, so you're going to go go do three weeks of Camp, camp Slappy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so for us, that was it. So I want to say that for me, my flight school experience was about a year and a month, if I remember correctly, almost to the day uh, from when I started. Now, that fluctuates depending upon maintenance, weather, needs of the Army, just the, the throughput. Because as I was telling you before we started, you know, Army aviation is pretty big. There's a lot of pilots. And so you're putting a lot of people through this very, you know, this very tiny straw and you're trying to push them through. And so you'd have these huge bubbles. I mean, I've heard of guys waiting, you know, between phases up to, you know, five or six months waiting to start, you know, from, from essentially instruments to their advanced aircraft or things like that. So you'd have these huge bubbles, uh, is what we called them. 
where you could be sitting around. So, so some guys could be there for, you know, up to two years in some cases, depending on, on the situation. Now, when you're talking about uh, doing the, the morning or the afternoon flight lines, are you obviously weather and maintenance dependent? You're flying just about every day during this? Yeah, the goal uh, was, yeah, five days a week. I know we never did it, but I, I've had friends who went, you know, after they left the Army, they ended up becoming instructor pilots there. Um, and I know that they would sometimes work on the weekends depending on the maintenance. But, you know, there's enough kind of play built into the system where, you know, you, you technically have more time than you need because they're factoring in some weather days and, and things of that nature. Uh, so, yeah, so I don't remember us ever graduating, you know, leaving one section, you know, late. Now, when I went back years later to do the Apache course, we had a ton of bad weather. So we, we almost did have to run through like a Christmas break. You know, we were supposed to be done before Christmas and they almost had us come back after because we were running out of time. But but yeah, they, they do have the option to, to do um, some weekend stuff. But five days a week was the plan. Okay. And I think we'll touch on this a little bit later when we talk about moving into tactically learning your aircraft. But it it is a different philosophy. It's a different culture from the Navy, from the Air Force, and every service does have their own culture. It's not better or it's not worse. It's right. just different. And That's right. being a Navy guy who's gone through several iterations of Army training, I can hear the the philosophy behind this, right? Like I said, it's not right or wrong. It's just that you guys are the largest service, number one. And if I'm not mistaken, I think the number still holds true. You're the largest single operator of helicopters in the world, right? Yeah, and I, I've, I've heard different numbers. I think we have more aircraft than any of the other branches too. Now I don't know if that's a hundred percent true, and and if there isn't some sort of like asterisk to that, uh, I would certainly say in a deployed environment we bring more aircraft than anybody else, and that's just again sh- sheer volume and size of our units and stuff. Right. But yeah, it's a it's a very different, it's a different culture. You know, every branch has their own way of looking at how they do things. Of course, we're more aligned uh, with the Marine Corps than I think any other when it comes to, you know, thought processes of of aviation as it relates to the ground force, you know, because most Air Force, you know, the, the, the Air Force way of thinking is very different, at least with most Air Force guys that I've ever talked to, is very different uh, than it is for the Army and the Marine Corps. And then amongst the Army and Marine Corps, we look at things very differently. You know, the Marines look at their uh, aviation almost like artillery, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure there's some Marine guy who's yelling at me right now and saying, I, you know, I'm, I'm speaking in very general terms. Uh, right. They treat they treat their aircraft as a close air support platform. The Army does not. Um, and so that, you know, and we could talk about that, of course, later. But that gets into a whole different way of looking at how you're going to employ uh, the aircraft and, and then how you're going to train the aircraft and, and the things that are that are required. So, yeah, it's a very different culture and it's difficult to it's difficult to compare and contrast because you do get into the conversation of which one's better. It's it's not a matter of which one's better. It's just it's just different. Right. Because it's almost a totally different mission, uh, e- even yeah. between the Marine Corps and the Army and definitely between the Army and the Navy and the Air Force models. And Sure. Yeah, I think in a little bit we'll talk about how you guys are employed in that philosophy. But before we move to that, I'd like you to tell the listener about flying a helicopter. And what I mean is we've talked to the fixed wing guys about what's important there. And obviously, you know, your your most obvious difference is 
they've got to have forward motion to maintain right. lift. And because of that, thrust versus weight versus drag, angle of attack, all these other things come into play and have to be intuitive. They have to be second nature to those guys with flying. And you guys, uh, helicopter aviators, have to have probably some similar, but then a lot of different knowledge bases or, or bits of information that are intuitive to you. So what is the helicopter pilot? Are you, are you learning in this, in, uh, you know, in your basic aviation training? Yeah. I mean, at its base level, flying a helicopter is more difficult than flying a fixed wing aircraft. And, and I'm very comfortable saying that now I fly 737s, you know, I've flown Cessnas, I've flown Seminoles, um, so I've got time in fixed wing and, and I can tell you that a fixed wing aircraft, generally speaking, wants to fly, uh, a helicopter wants to beat itself to death against the ground <laughs> with you inside of it. You know, that's what it wants to do. And you spend every waking moment in that aircraft preventing that from happening. Um, now of course some aircraft have some fancy equipment to help them. You know, Apaches have some, some great hold modes and, and things like that that'll help you. The Kiowa was an absolute death machine that was waiting to happen. Uh, not because it was a bad aircraft, but just because it was a very pure helicopter. It was not, you know, there was no fly-by-wire or any of that crap. It was just, it was you. It was man and machine melded together doing stuff. Yeah, helicopters, I would say that a vast majority of the time, it's really no different. Uh, once you get a helicopter moving forward, it generally flies like an airplane, just slower. And you don't do as much dynamic stuff. I wouldn't suggest doing too many uh, barrel rolls and things, though, of course, you, you can in certain aircraft. Um, I've been, you know, I've rolled at 120 degrees. It's very uncomfortable for me in a helicopter to have the big spinny fan underneath me. I don't I don't <laughs> like it personally. Uh, so I try to avoid it as much as I could. But, yeah, th there are absolutely some fundamentals that you have to understand. Primarily, just I always explain it to people is like I always just pictured a big arrow sticking out of the top of the aircraft and with all things being equal that arrow is pointing straight up and and that's that's where i want it when i'm hovering and now if i want to hover over here to the left or to the to the front i've got to adjust that arrow and and it's really just a matter at that point of understanding that if i move the arrow forward well the arrow is probably going to get smaller because I'm transferring some of that energy that's keeping the arrow straight up. Well, now I'm transferring it forward. So I need to add a little bit to the arrow, right? So I've got to mm -hmm. pull in a little bit of power in order to maintain my altitude. Because if I don't touch anything with the power and I go forward, eventually I'm going to hit the ground. And so just little nuanced things like that, that, it, you know, it's kind of like riding a bike. You try to explain this, how to ride a bike to somebody, <laughs> you just, you can't do it. You know, at least I can't right. do it. Um, but it's essentially the same concept is just get on it and keep doing it till you know how to do it so you know how to um, do it sure i mean i remember in primary very early on we, i think gosh it was like the third flight i think it was the night before the day before you know our instructor pilot bob gilbert i'll never forget this guy he was just completely cool miss just awesome old vietnam guy and uh he says all right tomorrow we're gonna do auto rotations and i mean i'm not kidding when i almost broke down in tears like i just i felt emotional you know i got the yeah. And, uh, and I was like, what, what do you mean? I was like, we don't even know how to hover yet. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, no, it's, it's easier. And I was like, you're talking about cutting off the engine and it's easier than hovering? And he, and he was not wrong because you had forward airspeed and all you were doing is just managing the fall. You know, I mean, that's, that's a, yeah. you're just a controlled fall and then, and then creating some cushion at the bottom. But hovering in and of itself is the absolute hardest thing 
uh, that, that people will spend a lot of time struggling with. And even when you figure out how to do it, you know, it's still, it's like having your little kid learn how to ride a bike. It's like, yeah, they can do it, but they're not very good at it. And then over time they get really good and then they can do all kind of crazy stuff and stand up on the, you know, the, the, the pedals and, and do all kind of weird stuff. And eventually you get to that point where it is very natural, but yeah, fundamentally, uh, once you get the understanding of hovering, I think the rest of it's easy. And I think the hardest part at that point is probably just understanding how to get back into a hover, right? So you, once you get it into forward flight, now you're flying like an airplane and it's, it's very relaxed. It's like, well, now I got to land. And so it's again, the understanding of that balance between airspeed and power, and it's a constant management of the two and, and trying to maintain that balance or take a little bit of that balance out because again, I'm trying to land. So I got to go down. Uh, so it's like, well, I need to, I need to decrease my airspeed. So I got to increase my power, but I don't want to increase my power so much that I balance this out. So I need to increase my power just enough so that I keep falling, but I don't want to fall too fast because then I'm going to fall into my own downwash and it's going to be a bad day and I'm going to hit the ground pretty hard. Uh, you know, a, a, an example of that, uh, as I understand it, you know, the Osama bin Laden raid, you know, they, right. they unfortunately got stuck into kind of their own downwash and that has something to do with the, the structure of the, the fence line there that, you know, right. uh, just prevented the airflow and stuff. So things like that. You, so you're, you're always kind of on, on the margins and especially with, uh, with aircraft that are heavy, you know, and Kiowas were always heavy. You know, we were just an overloaded beast. Uh, Apaches wasn't, wasn't a big deal, but then you take a Blackhawk or Chinook, then it's got fully loaded with dudes in the back and stuff. So you're always running those margins and, and trying to find that good sweet spot between over torquing the hell out of the aircraft or just banging it against the ground. You're just, you're just always running between those two lines. Right. And so, yeah, the, my understanding on the, on the open source level with what you were talking about on the, uh, the Neptune spear raid, the, the Bin Laden raid was, and this is funny because, you know, this whole series is about training and train like yeah. you fight. And just sometimes the littlest detail, my understanding is that when they ran the mock-ups, they used a chain link fence yeah, uh, to replicate. Well. And it was it was actually a solid structure fence. And that little bit of difference made all the difference. And, you know, worth mentioning that those were probably some of the best helicopter pilots in the world. So not throwing yeah. any shade on them. It's just, right as you said, operating at those margins... And, of course, especially in Afghanistan, in addition to the heavy load, heat, altitude, all these things working against the helicopter, right? Whereas a fixed wing, you know, yeah, there's some ceiling limitations, but, you know, speed is life and you can, you want altitude, you can trade altitude for speed or vice versa. You guys have to make all of your own power, right? Because what I mean by that is you don't get a catapult to shoot you off the bow, Right. You don't, you can't just go, well, I've got a longer runway and I can yeah. do that. What you've got is what you've got, right? Yeah, you, you have to, exactly. So, and there's so many things uh, as you were talking that jump in my head because one, 100% what you said, I've read the same thing and I've never talked to anyone who was on the raid, but I've talked to people who were in that community who knew them and, and 100% is what I've heard is, you know, that, well, they practice with a chain link. So it allows the airflow through. Uh, when I was in Afghanistan, you know, we were up in uh, Tarankout, which was kind of up in the mountains. So we were already at high altitude. Uh, so you start talking about density and pressure altitudes and stuff. And we had these, you know, these um, HESCO barriers, like these giant right. sandbags yeah. between all the aircraft to protect them in case one got hit with a mortar and it didn't hurt the others. Well, when it got to the summertime, it got to the point where you couldn't even get out of your parking spot. You know, I would remember 
I remember one time in particular trying to pick up to a hover, couldn't even really get to a hover. So I called my crew chiefs over, you know, blades are spinning and stuff. I said, hey, take that missile off. You know, it's a hundred pound missile. I'm barely on the, the edge of being able to get out of here. So I had them pull the missile off so that I could pick it up to a sort of hover and kind of scratch my way down, like literally dragging the skids across the ground yeah. to get out away from these these barricades and then have them put the missile back on. And now I could hover out and take off. And then just like you said, you know, having enough space is helpful, but you only have enough power. And so, you know, you'd be you'd be you'd be hopping down the runway, essentially, you know, skipping across the ground. Uh, and, and in some cases, you know, I would abort the takeoff. So, okay, you know, we, we don't have enough. We're going to sit here for five minutes and burn off some gas. Mm-hmm. Um, so Afghanistan was a really challenging environment, especially for the Kiowa. It still managed to do it. Uh, but yeah, once you got in the air, you know, you, that's why I was trying to tell people like the, the time where you need power the most is really at a hover. You know, if you're at a, a high hover, if you're outside of ground effect, uh, which is essentially is a cushion of, of air that's created being close to the ground. So if you picture it, you're at, you know, 10 feet hovering your air, the air is hitting the ground and that's sort of creating this cushion. Now climb up to about 50 or 60 feet. You are clawing at the sky to keep that thing at a hover. You know, you're using every bit of energy that you have, uh, depending on your weight. That's the most power that you're going to use. And so once you take off, once you get into that forward airspeed, you start getting that fresh air into the rotor system you, you get a little bit of efficiency gain back. And then once you get up to altitude, yeah, now you're pulling, you know, 65% torque, whereas taking off, I was using 85, 90% torque. And so, yeah, it's, it's power management is huge, especially, and this is why, you know, I, I say it tongue in cheek, but I also kind of mean it. Kiowa pilots were probably the best helicopter pilots in the world, uh, in the military when it came to understanding power management, because we were always a hundred percent right at the limits. You know, when, when I'm having to make choices, of how many rockets I can take versus how much gas or which crew member I'm going to fly with because I'm that close to the weight limits. You know, every time I'm taking off, I'm right at the edge. I'm always taking off at max gross weight. I never had that problem as an Apache guy. You know, I, I mean, you know, you might eyeball it a little bit. Like, eh, okay, this one's going to be a little tight. But I was never finding that little spot where it's like, okay, if I move the collective up just a quarter of an inch, I'm going to over torque. But if I drop it a quarter of an inch, I'm going to hit the ground. Um, And and so then the only thing you can do is try to use the environment and something that I used to do. And it wasn't really it wasn't really taught, but I kind of learned it through, you know, the old school guys. You know, if I was number two taking off, you know, I'd be parked next to number one. We'd come out of the FARP and we'd meet, you know, in 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 the uh, in the gravel. And I'd be, you know, right off as as his four o'clock or seven o'clock position. He would take off, and I would immediately take off. And this used to scare new guys uh, until I explained to them what I was doing. But when they took off, think about all the air that they're pushing out, right, in all directions as they're as they're lifting up. Well, to me, that's fresh air, right? So I would pick up and kind of nose towards them as they're nosing forward. So I'm take I'm doing this really sort of tight formation takeoff with them. It's because I'm using their downwash to create lift for me. And so you'd kind of learn these little tricks uh, over time because otherwise, yeah, you were, you were super limited uh, with your power and capability. That, that part's fascinating. I, uh, let me clarify a term. FARP is forward air refueling point. Is that right? Forward uh, arming and refueling point. Yeah. Arming so that's, uh, okay. yeah. So that's a, a gas station for helicopters. Yeah. Right. Because with some notable exceptions, you guys don't have air to air refueling. So. Right. Yeah, so it's not uncommon for you guys to leave a base, move to move to a FARP, 
you know, and get what you need and keep going. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, so what you were just talking about with that is fascinating because I think the layman looks at a helicopter and just thinks, well, okay, you know, it's, you know, if the rotor's going around, then that's generating lift. And if you're near the ground, okay, well, all that air is pushing down and you're closer to the ground and that must be good. And as you're saying, it can be good and it can be bad. Yeah. Yeah. Depending on how close you are. Yeah. Right. And that's fascinating to me that you're talking about, you know, the clean air, because I think fixed wing aviators think about the the slipstream off another aircraft as dirty air, right? Like it's not going to yeah. behave the way that just you flow, you passing through the air medium would, but for you, you're, you've got benefit from it. So that's, if you use it smartly, you can, if you, yeah, you can, smartly, or, yeah. or it can be absolute terrible. Right. I mean, it's, it's still a concern. Uh, you know, if you're landing and there's wake turbulence from another aircraft and sure that could be a concern, but yeah. if, you know, and I tell you, you know, I know we're kind of jumping around, but, you know, I learned that trick from a guy who, uh, you know, very, very seasoned pilot. And we landed in this small field. We're here at Fort Bragg. And uh, this is my first duty station. And we landed in this field. It was really windy that day. And he says, let me show you something. And he, he makes me get as close to the trees on the upwind side of this field as possible. And he says, we, you know, we're always power limited. He's like, I want you to just pick it up to a hover and just continue to climb up into the edge of the trees. And I mean, we're right on the limits, you know, like it's, it's, it's kind of getting into the yellow on our little chicklets, uh, which is telling us like, you know, the TGT and the, 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 the gas temperature and, and all that stuff. And so we're, we're riding right on the line. But the moment I got that rotor system above the trees, it hit the wind, right? So the wind, you know, you got 15, 20 knot winds hitting it and the aircraft, I'm not kidding. When I say I didn't touch the controls, the aircraft kind of just just rose it just kind of lifted yeah. into the air you know it didn't jump but it just we just started climbing and he was like that there you go like that's that's the difference between you know having no air to, to having some air and so i just sort of applied that myself you know no one ever taught me i just you know i just started doing it and using other people's but those are the tricks that you learn over time and then and then you become the old guy you know i remember being the old guy and flying with Apache instructor pilots. And I was like, hey, I know you don't need this because you have two engines, but let me show you a trick. And, you know, they're like, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. And then they start teaching yeah. it. And so, you know, stuff like that becomes tribal lore. But, yeah, it's it's a it's a different world. I think the, the transition from helicopters to airplanes was a lot easier. Uh, you know, I've met airplane guys who went to fly helicopters and it, it, it doesn't translate as easily. And it's because it, fundamentally there's some differences that are just hard to to overcome. And most of those happens when you're landing. I mean, landing the two is a very different, uh, different feel. Yeah. I think when you described it as learning to ride a bicycle, that really drove it home for me because you can't really explain to anyone how to ride a bicycle. You can, you can tell them right. you need to pedal. You can tell them you need to keep the, you know, can't keep the wheel straight, <laughs> but until you get on there and just do it. And that yeah. really gave me a feeling for all, everything you're trying to do. You're trying to coordinate all these different things. And like you said, you know, there's a lot of unassisted flying yeah. there, right? Well, and, and you're, you're trying to, you're trying to make different parts of your body do different things that you're just flat out not used to. You know, it's like the old rub your head and pat your belly type thing. Right. Uh, you know, I remember Mr. Gilbert, when he was teaching us how to hover, the first thing he did was he picked it up to a hover and he says, okay, you have the pedals. All I want you to do is keep the nose pointed at that tree over there and I'm going to control everything else. 
And, you know, you start off and you're like, okay, you know, I got this. Next thing you know, he's yelling at you saying, why aren't we pointing at the trees? Like, well, I am. Well, no, you're not. Your head is turned 90 degrees off to the side <laughs> because you're so yeah. focused on staring at these trees and you don't realize you're not putting in enough pedal. And so now the nose is pointing off to the other direction. And so then, they, you know, you'd get used to that and they'd say, OK, you have the collective. Right. So that that's what the, the basically the up and down lever. Right. Uh, you just control that. And so. You know, now you're moving that. And then when you fly an old aircraft like the Bell 206, you know, it doesn't have a lot of this fancy stuff for stability. It's all you. And so it's a constant motion. You know, we used to call it stirring the soup. You're constantly moving all of your hands. You know, your right hand is, is you know, making a circle between your legs. Your left hand is going up and down. Your feet are pushing in and out, pushing in and out. Um, so you're constantly moving all of these parts in ways that I can't think of any other thing in life that we, we do this, you know? So it's a very right. alien feeling versus an airplane, which is almost intuitive, especially if you've driven a car, you know, it's, it's kind of the same thing, you know, you just turn left and it turns left. And so that's, yeah, it, it, it's a little bit to overcome. And then, and, but much like riding a bike, once you figure it out, you've got it you know it's it's always sealed back in your brain case and, and you can pull it you might be a little rusty but i'm pretty sure i can yeah. jump and, and start hovering right now and i haven't hovered in you know, five years so we've talked in earlier episodes about these are you know young kids we were all young kids at one point right doesn't seem yeah. like it now but and <laughs> you're drinking from the fire hose learning all of this Oh yeah, and in your case you said a year you said maybe that's that's about average that's even less time than uh, the fixed wing brethren normally get. So it's just a lot. And you're training, you guys are training physiologically to you know, stir the pot, like you're saying, ride this bike. You're also learning how to process all this information. And you mentioned you know, terrain and using the terrain and the fixed wing guys talked about road recce during their training, which I think was more of a, a navigation exercise, which to some extent it is for you guys, but you guys are also learning to use the train as part of your battlefield, right? And and yeah. uh, as I say this, this is maybe a good transition into talking about when you're moving on to your first unit, which is where you guys learn how to, to fight the helicopter. So before I do that, should we talk about anything else from, from flight school, like about getting your wings? Tell me about getting your wings physically, like. Yeah. Big ceremony, small ceremony. Yeah, it was a you know big ish ceremony. Um, we have uh, at Fort Rucker. There's a the Army Aviation Museum, and they've which is a great museum. If you're ever in Lower Alabama, we call it L.A. Uh, if you're ever down in L.A., uh, swing by Fort Rucker. It's right by the front gate, but it's a great museum. Uh, it's got uh, the old Comanche. I think it still does. Has the Comanche aircraft it's got you know unfortunately now it has kiowas you know you're old when the aircraft you flew ends up in yeah. the museum it makes you feel weird but uh hey at um, least you but, get uh, museums mine are all going to sync x's and stuff like that oh geez <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah they haven't turned any of mine into drones and shot them down or anything yeah. <laughs> but uh uh but great museum but they, they that's where they have a lot of the ceremonies for anything aviation related there at rucker and uh yeah you know and you'd have Again, it's kind of weird because you started with a certain group of people. I want to say there was about 30, if I remember correctly, when I started flight school. But, of course, some of us went to Flack, Iowa. Some of us went to Blackhawk. So, you know, we, we separated halfway through. And now you go off, and I want to say my Kiowa class was about 12. And then you get sucked back into that warrant officer basic course. And now you're back into a group of, you know, like 80, you know. But there's, there's Blackhawk guys who 
who flew, you know, started flight school six months after you did because their timeline's different. So, you know, it's not as homogenous anymore. You don't feel yeah. like the same crowd. But yeah, you know, you have a little ceremony and they have, you know, the speaker and stuff. And then you go up there and you, you get your wings. You know, at that point, you're just ready to go. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, I don't have, I honestly, other than I, I can picture the pictures that I have from that day, but I can't remember any of it because I think at that point, you're just like, you've already got your assignment. You've been flying for a year. You know, you leave there with probably 100 or so hours, at least as a Kiowa guy. I, I seem, seem to recall having about 100 hours. So you're just ready to go. You're ready to get after it. I guess I will say one thing about flight school, at least when I went through, and, and when we talk about culture. And unfortunately, I think this went away. I don't know if it's come back, but when I went through flight school, we had colored hats. And so every class had a colored hat. And uh, my class was uh, 2403. I think we were the last 24th class of 2003. We were the last class. And we had yellow hats. Um, and so they were like baseball caps. Yeah. And uh, so you'd have these caps. And that's how they knew you know, what classes you were. I remember the class ahead of us, 2303. They had orange caps. And... Uh, when you got to solo, and so we did solo, uh, but it was kind of a, a hokey solo. You'd solo with your stick buddy. So you'd get to about, I want to say it was about 17 hours or so uh, of flying during primary. And you've you've learned how to auto-rotate. You've learned how to hover. And now the instructor pilot says, okay, you're going to hover or you're going to go solo. And all you did was like three laps in the traffic pattern. Um, but it was you and your stick buddy, and that was it. And that was probably the most exciting thing that I remember from flight school was was doing a solo. And I remember uh, what we call chair flying. I'm sure most pilots have heard that term before. Uh, chair flying is when you sit in a chair, you know, you close your eyes and you just think about all the maneuvers and, and, and you know, move your hands and think about what you would be doing. And I chair was was chair flying, thinking about, you know, auto rotating and what happens if something, you know, breaks or blah, blah, blah totally prepared for this day and we go do our solo and I remember flying over this elementary school that was right there and I just I just remember thinking like man there's kids down there looking up at us saying that's really <laughs> cool because I remember yeah. being that kid you know seeing helicopters yeah. and stuff flying over and be like man I want to do that and so that was like the first moment for me where it was like holy holy cow this is this is a thing that I'm actually doing that I've always wanted to do so after you solo you would get these these ridiculously large uh, sew on solo wings and then you were allowed to put them on your hat and then we did something called the solo cycle and i don't know when this started it it, it probably vietnam time frame uh but it was this weird little bicycle that that had been like welded with you know like a little rotor on top and, and stuff like that and you would take the junior guy of the class and he would ride the solo cycle and every class that was available would come out to this to the solo cycle you know it happened like every month and every yeah. class would come out there and, you know, they'd squirt them with water guns and throw, you know, water balloons and stuff. And this kid, you know, whatever guy, the junior guy would would ride the solo cycle down at the end of the street and then come back and, and do it again. And uh, and I remember just like that, you know, coming into aviation, that's the kind of stuff you want to do. You want to wear cool guy patches. Yep. You know, you want to you want to go get drinks after you go for a flight. You know, you want to do all this fun camaraderie stuff that you always read about in books. And uh, I think we were the last class to have a solo cycle. I think they got rid of it. Huh. Uh, I think it came back. I I've, I can't remember talking to somebody if it came back or not, but for years it, it wasn't there. They got rid of the hats. You know, they just started getting rid of all this stuff that I think was a huge mistake. 
it, it led itself to, you know, it lent itself to culture and, and just feeling inclusive versus just, well, now I'm an army guy and I fly helicopters. So more though, more so than getting my wings, I remember the solo cycle. I remember putting those solo wings on and, and it was just a, a point of pride, I, you know, I guess. Um, but, but other than that, yeah, I mean, flight school is pretty straightforward. You go in there and you learn how to fly and, you, and then you go home. Uh, but we, yeah, we don't really do tactics at all in flight school. And I think there's a financial reason for that, honestly. Really? Okay. So, um, yeah, talk me through that. What, why do you think that is? Well, again, having talked to other guys who went through other branches and, and how they do their training, you know, they're smaller classes, generally speaking, you know, the throughput is just not as, not as robust. You know, they go to these other, I guess what the Navy calls it the rag or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And they, they learn how to do the tactics and stuff. You know, most guys I've talked to, even the helicopter guys, you know, they're spending, you know, two plus years in a normal pipeline, spending two plus years learning how to do their their job and their aircraft. And then they go to the fleet or to the you know wing or whatever. And then they still got to go through some training. I mean, it's not like they show up day one and like, OK, cool, you're ready. You're combat ready. Like they're still going to go through some sort of training. I think for us with our throughput trying to then have a separate training program that focused on tactics, it would just be a non-starter. You know, you would just, you, you would, you would create even larger bubbles than what I talked about uh, prior. Uh, so the way that we do it is you finish flight school, you are what we call a, a pilot, a PI. Um, so that's your code. You put in a, a PI when you fly, you're not a pilot in command. So you're a standard PI and then you get assigned to your unit and then that is where you start learning the tactics of the aircraft. You know, you, you, you go through some more training just to verify that you actually know what you're doing and you do a bunch of auto rotations and basic flight stuff, uh, a lot of night stuff because, you, you know, you don't have that much time doing night. And of course, you know, especially if you're a scout or attack guy, you're going to do a lot of night flying. So you do all that stuff and then you move into the, uh, the tactics, the, the multi-aircraft tactics, and then you get signed off to be a, a fully fledged combat ready pilot. And then you're focusing on becoming a, a pilot in command. Okay. And, you know, having been, well, being a Navy guy who went through a couple different types of army training, it sounds culturally very much like army training. And again, as I right. said before, that's not better or worse. It's just culturally different. And I know going through the army training for the various things I did jointly, just like you said, they're training you how to use all the com- component tools, yeah, but not how to employ those tools. And that right. I think at every army unit, be it infantry, armor, aviation, artillery, whatever, yeah. that's just the way the army does it. Again, not right or wrong, just different. Well, so let's. I mean, do you want to talk about the size and scope? Because I think that yeah, let's forms. let's do that because I think if if you don't mind. People are probably familiar, even if this is all they've listened to, uh, you know, the, the first episode here, first two episodes, they get squadrons, they sort of get wings, they get that, that stuff. Explain the combat structure of the Army and, you know, probably, you know, squad to brigade combat team or start at the top and go down. I think we don't need to go divisions and court thing well, like that, but... Well, we will just attempt to touch on it. So, you know, I was joking okay. about the Marine, the Marine Corps is a Corps. You know, the Army's got several, right? So, uh, <laughs> you know, we've got, you know, three off the top of my head, 3rd Corps, I-Corps, and uh, 18th Airborne Corps. Mm-hmm. Each of those corps have multiple divisions, right? Each of those divisions is made up of brigades, and this is where aviation starts to come into play. So you've got 
Uh, we'll take the 82nd Airborne, which is where I spent a majority of my time as a pilot. Back in the day, I think it's changed again, but they had four infantry brigades, you know, airborne infantry brigades. Then you had some support stuff, some artillery, blah, blah, blah. And then over there in a the corner, you had the Combat Aviation Brigade. So this is a, an organization commanded by a colonel, and it has under it five battalions. And those battalions are led by a lieutenant colonel. So if you look at a Air Force squadron, and I'm, I'm again, speaking very generalities, you know, Air Force squadron, from what I understand, led by a lieutenant colonel, has about 12 aircraft. An Apache squadron or an Apache battalion would have 24 aircraft led by a lieutenant colonel. So we've got those five battalions. One of them is the Aviation Support Battalion. So this is all of the the logistics, or I should say the higher level logistics, supporting the brigade, supporting maintenance of the aircraft, supporting ground maintenance, things of that nature. Uh, and I spent about 18 months in one of those as an executive officer, which was a great experience. Even as a pilot, I thought it was, you know, death knell, but I, I loved it. Uh, and then we have the four, what we call line battalions. So you've got a general support aviation battalion, You've got a air assault battalion, and then you have two Apache units. One of them is an attack battalion, or I guess they call them an attack reconnaissance battalion now. And then you've got the air reconnaissance squadron, which is basically the same thing. It's just sort yeah. of a lineage type thing. Uh, you know, the, the army is very big on its lineage and going back to, you know, pre-Civil War and cavalry and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so that's your cavalry squadron, and I, I spent some time and spent a vast majority of my aviation career as a, as a cavalry squadron guy. So we'll go back to the Kiowa days. You would have uh, an attack battalion of uh, Apaches. You would have a Kiowa cavalry squadron. You would have that assault battalion. You have the GSAB. So the GSAB was, again, general support. You had some Chinooks. And you had a bunch of Blackhawks, and those Blackhawks were broken up into two different companies. One was doing uh, your medevac, and then the other was your, uh, I can't think of the name, uh, but it's like a general support company. They, they would have the command and control birds, they would do VIP stuff, and sometimes they would do assault type operations if you didn't have enough aircraft. But And then you'd have your, uh, your Chinooks, which is your heavy lift, and they could do assault operations as well. So that, com- that uh, uh, battalion right there is, I want to say about 30... Two aircraft. I can't. I might. I'm probably off on that number just a little bit. But 32, 35, 36, somewhere in that number, uh, aircraft. Then you've got your assault battalion, which is three companies of Blackhawks. Each company has ten aircraft, and each of those companies is commanded by a captain. So, so right there, you're getting this very strange, like a captain in the Air Force. You know, maybe he's like leading a flight of two. You know, captain in the Army and aviation, he's got like ten, eight, ten aircraft under his right. command. You know, so so that's where those cultural things start to really change, mm-hmm. uh, and then of course he's got a ton of warrant officers, most of which probably have more experience than he is, he does. You know, so then there's a different dichotomy of of leadership that that has to go on there, and not everyone does very well at that understanding that leadership of you know yes you're in charge, but that guy knows a lot more than you, and you know right. how do you how do you balance that? Uh, but of course that also lends itself to followership. You know, some guys aren't very good at understanding that you may know more, but that guy's in charge of you. So it, it, it leads to some interesting conversations. Uh, and then you've got your two Apache units, um, or again, like I said, back in the day, the Kiowa unit. So we had an Apache battalion of 24 Apaches broken up into three companies of eight. And then the current model is a cavalry squadron of 24 Apaches broken up into three troops of eight. Uh, but back in my day in the Kiowas, it was a cavalry squadron of 30 Kiowas with 10 aircraft per troop 
uh, and that's that was my career as a, as a Kiowa guy. So already we can see that this is a huge outfit, right? This is a brigade. Yeah. That's 100, you know, I, I used to know the numbers, 110, we'll say, 110 aircraft. Well, I've got one of those per division, and I've got four divisions per core, and I've got three cores. Plus, I'm probably going to have, you know, some outlier units that belong to, you know, kind of weird organizations that exist. And, and then, uh, heck, the 101st had two aviation brigades. So already we can see we got a lot of aircraft. And knowing what I know about the military, I hate to say this, but a lot of times the military doesn't trust itself when it comes to training. And I saw this a lot, mm -hmm. even as an instructor. We assume guys coming out of the schoolhouse have a technical know-how, but we don't always assume that they have a practical know-how. And so when I say things are financial, could the Army create a platform, a, 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 a school by which you could teach these guys to be tactically savvy so that they could show up to their unit and, and immediately get into the fight? Yes, but I'm telling you right now, I don't think anyone would trust it. I think guys would come out of there and they would show up to their unit, which every unit does things a little bit differently. Everyone's got a different SOP. And hell, sometimes they have different missions, right? The 82nd Airborne was a very different animal than the 1st Cavalry Division, you know, in, in the way that it approached doing stuff because it had a very different mission. I don't think guys would show up from that type of environment and be treated as if they knew what was going on. They, they still have to pay their dues and, and go through the training plan. So I think it would be wasted. And even talking to guys who are in other branches, they still have the same problem. You know, they still go through some sort of tactical phase where they learn all this stuff. They show up to their unit. They still have to go through some other train up. So it's really no different. And again, since we're not trying to create a solo combat ready aviator because none of our aircraft are, are, are single pilot, there's no need for me to spend a whole lot of time early on teaching this guy how to be a master. You know, I don't need him to be a master aviator. I need him to be a competent aviator in flying the aircraft and knowing what button to push, generally speaking. And that's it. That's all I need because he's going to show up to the unit and then he's going to be taken by an instructor pilot. And they're going to spend about uh, six months uh, teaching this guy and getting him up to combat ready. So the way that it works for us is, again, is like I talked about, we show up as a as a PI and you're considered what's called readiness level three. So RL3, they have about 90 days to make you RL2. So RL3 is all about flying the aircraft, flying a lot of nights, just all these individual tasks, you know, flying with your your protective mask on. Uh, you know, you have to do a little bit of that flying, doing basic gunnery and, you know, everything individual. Then you get to RL2 and now you're learning the team tactics. So you've learned how to do a route reconnaissance, just how to functionally do it as a crew member. Well, now we're going to go out with another aircraft and we're going to do a route reconnaissance. And now we're going to do an attack and now we're going to do gunnery and we're going to do all these things. Once you complete that phase, which is another about three months, then you get signed off as readiness level one. You are, no kidding, ready to fly with any pilot in command. You are a combat-ready crew member. Before you make R01, you have to fly with an instructor pilot, or they can sign you off for certain tasks. You know, So when I was a pilot in command in Apaches, sometimes I would get a guy who's RL2, and they'd say, hey, you know, he, he can fly goggles, and he can do these specific tasks. And I'd say, okay, so I can, I can do that with him, but I can't go do something else that, that wasn't mm -hmm. signed off. Uh, but that's generally how it works. And that, and that's where that all that tactical training comes into play. And even by then, you're still not a wizard by any stretch of the imagination because uh, there's, there's just too much to cover. And so then I go, go I go back to this idea of like, well, if you did make a school, how long is it going to be? 
because you know you start factoring in how do you fight near peer threats how do you fight peer threats how do you fight an insurgency which you know we're still trying to figure right. out yeah. uh, you know you're not gonna be able to teach all this stuff so what's the point of trying to do it that way the current model you know as painful as it can be it, it, you know it works um, and it allows those guys to get steeped in the culture of their unit it allows them to learn uh, the specifics you know again I go back to the 82nd Airborne which I really enjoyed being a part of but we did things very differently. We flew Kiowas that had a different type of landing gear than any other Kiowa in the Army um, because we would have to load up on the back of C-130s. And, you know, if the balloon went up, the paratroopers are jumping out of planes. They're seizing an airfield. Ten minutes after they land, the C-130 is landing on the airfield they just captured. And we're pushing a Kiowa, you know, two Kiowas out the back of the C-130, squatting the thing up, putting the blades back on, putting the sensors back on, and we're flying and we're in the fight. No other division had Kiowas that had to do that. So, you know, little things like that, you, you, it's better to just get the guy to the unit, let him start training uh, and getting ready. But, but of course, the drawback there is you don't always have a full stable of instructor pilots. You know, when I was a commander, I generally only had two and you're supposed to have three. So it makes it challenging to, to get those guys. And so you really got to manage your people and manage your training uh, so that you don't have these huge bubbles. Uh, so that you get guys in and, you know, sometimes you got to hold the instructor pilots to the, to the fire too and say, look, I, I, you know, you've been flying this guy for, for two months. Is he ready to go? Cause if he is, let's sign him off. Yeah. You know, let's do keep, it. Keep moving on. Um, and sometimes guys are reluctant, you know, it's like, it's like putting your kids on the school bus, you know, sometimes <laughs> you, you just don't want to let them go, but yep. you know, they're a big kid, you know, let them, let them go fight. Yeah. So a couple things that jumped out there at me. One is that unlike, uh, you know, most, well, I won't say most, but a lot of the fixed wing assets and the other services, to your point, you're never flying alone. You know, you're getting OJT yeah. from the every time you're flying until you're that PIC, right? So That's right. you're yeah. learning all that. And then the other contrast that you brought up is that, yeah, every squadron is going to be different in the Air Force, in the Navy. But by and large, I think there's an expectation that if you're an F-18 pilot and you go to one squadron, you should be able to move over to another squadron, learn right. maybe some of the idiosyncrasies or just the way they do it. But to your point, same platform, vastly different way of doing things because of the different mission in the different divisions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The different, and that's a great point too, because the different divisions just in and of themselves. I mean, if again, you use my comparison, the 82nd Airborne, it's all infantry. You know, I mean, they've got vehicles, but you know, they're not rolling with tanks. Mm -hmm. Well, now you have First Cav Division or Third Infantry Division. They got tanks and Bradleys. So your lift guys, you know, it's a great thing that I, I used to notice all the time as an observer at the Joint Readiness Training Center. You know, the lift guys coming from a heavy division were not as practiced in the art of air assaults. Well, well, sure, because they work for a heavy division. And when the hell is a heavy division going to do an air assault? Right. You know, they're not going to leave all their Bradleys and tanks behind. In fact, I think there's been some discussion here in recent years of uh, completely changing the dynamic of these combat aviation brigades. Because, you know, again, Iraq and Afghanistan for so long, it was a plug and play mentality. You know, they made all these units try to look similar so that you could, you know, pull them out of one place. You know, as an 82nd Airborne guy... I deployed in direct support to a striker brigade out of Fort Lewis, mm -hmm. who was then replaced by a brigade out of Fort Hood. I never even saw an 82nd Airborne guy in the ground. 
but because we were this plug and play you know modular type force you could do that but i think now we're starting to 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 pull our head out of the you know the the close target and look look deep and say okay this doesn't make sense the blackhawk chinook guys are not getting the reps that they need and then con- you know contrarily the 101st is a great example is an air assault division you know that's their bread and butter well they should probably have more chinooks and probably have more Blackhawks. So I think there's some discussion of changing that dynamic so that so that lift guys get that so that they can get those reps. Uh, but yeah, you're 100 right. I mean, the Apache guys in particular, you know, an Apache is an Apache, even though some places have Delta models, some places have Echo models. But as long as you have a basic understanding of how to fly the aircraft, that's great. You can move between the two units. But again, that's it's too much to teach in a in a schoolhouse environment, and and that OJT cannot be overstated it doesn't matter what you learn in school especially when you're a new guy you know there's your brain is a, is a sponge but but even a sponge can get filled up you know, right. with water right yeah so uh it comes you know and i see this just in my own transition to flying 737s it's like you can throw all this information at me but i'm still back there at that piece of information you gave me two days ago you know right. i need to process that before I can move on to the next thing. So I again, I think it's just a, it would be a wasted effort. Allow guys to get to their unit and uh, and get spooled up at a at a different pace and a, and a little bit more personal pace, quite quite frankly. Yeah, it, I guess the other thing is, you know, can you imagine the food fight over what that tactical school would look like based on what you've told me, right? Like, yeah. so which of these paradigms is the school, and if you're going to teach all the different paradigms, why? To your point, oh, uh, you know, absolutely, yeah. and yeah, where's the money coming from, and yeah, who's yeah. who's got the ownership? Oh, yeah, I don't want to be involved in that right. at all. So, <laughs> sounds terrible. Having said all that, having talked about all that, we mentioned a little bit earlier that what the Army does with aviation is different from what the Air Force and Navy do, and right. related to the Marine Corps, but even they're a little bit different. You mentioned the Marine Corps is seeing their their aircraft as close air support artillery almost. And that's not necessarily, yeah. I, I think my understanding, please correct me if I'm wrong, is that that's more of a an effect that Army aviation can bring to the battlefield. But that's not what you are. You guys are a maneuver element, just like all these other brigades and battalions, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you said it just right. And again, you know, we're speaking in generalities. I'm sure there's some unit in the Marines that treats it differently, you know, whatever. In general, you have fires and you have maneuver, right? And so fires is exactly what you said it's effects what am i what am i what effect am i trying to have nobody cares about the fires in in and of itself it's what's the effect and then maneuver is exactly as maneuvering on the enemy we treat our attack and and reconnaissance aviation as a maneuver element so the way that i like to explain that to guys who who look at me funny when we talk about it is think of a tank okay you've got a tank now think of it 50 feet in the air like, like, how would you tell that tank to do stuff when it was on the ground? We'll, we'll do that, except treat it that it's in the air. Um, and that's huge. And it's hard for people to, even in the Army, it's hard for, for a lot of those ground force commanders to kind of understand that. And, well, frankly, some aviation leaders do. It's hard to understand that dichotomy or that, that, that difference between the two. And I always, again, pointed out, to if you send out two helicopters to go do something, it's like, well, would you send two tanks to do this, you know? How would you maneuver if this was anything other than a helicopter? And so then you start layering on the support, you start layering on the distance and, and you know time considerations and all that good stuff. Uh, but fundamentally, it comes back to what we would consider close air support and what the Army 
uh, whew, the term changed recent, like right as I was retiring and I, I, I couldn't bother myself to learn it cause it was kind of confusing, but we used to call it close combat attack. Now I think it's a uh, combat within c- close proximity to troops. You know, it's the old military game of let's change this acronym. Right. Yeah. Uh, just, just because, but, but essentially it's the same thing. It's, it's, am I attacking something that's close to friendlies or am I attacking something that's far away from friendlies? What used to be called like a, a deep attack. But we'll look at what's what's close to friendlies. So in a normal, everyday construct, I'm not talking about an, an extremist situation or somebody who's specially qualified as a FAC A or something like that. A normal quali- a normal situation, if a jet or a, a marine helicopter, generally speaking, sees something on the ground, it has to coordinate with someone to, to engage that target because of CAS, right? So a CAS needs a JTAC or you know some sort of terminal control uh, to engage targets unless they've been given some clearance like this is a kill box or something like that. Really by the letter of the law, and of course the rules of engagement will change these things, but just generally speaking, if I'm flying along and I see a T-72 and I know that friendlies don't use T-72s, well then I can shoot the T-72 hmm. and I'll let you know about it later. You know, I'll call you when it's when it's done. And again, that goes back to when I was a tank guy. You know, we would learn contact reports and, and spot reports. So if I'm driving a tank... And I see BMPs. I'm going to call on the radio, contact three BMPs east out. That's it. That's all I'm going to say to you. Because in the next couple of seconds, I might be dead. And right. then somebody can at least, who's been tracking the stuff, who's battle tracking, should be battle tracking. They say, okay, blue platoon was vicinity checkpoint three. They just called and said, contact BMPs to the east. And we haven't heard from them since. We know there's BMPs over in this area. Now, a few minutes later, I may call back and, and here's my spot report and my salute report and say, hey, engage in destroyed three BMPs, vicinity grid, blah, blah, blah. That's the same mentality for Army aviation in the the, the peer or near peer uh, fight. Now, of course, this has changed dramatically because of the insurgency. Uh, and we don't want to go out and just start randomly shooting stuff. You know, I mean, right. we, we really don't. The, the what I what I want people to really understand for, for all of us, not just the Army, but for all of us, we really do go through a lot of pains to prevent fratricide, uh, civcast, civilian casualties, infrastructure, you know, all that stuff. Um, you know, I've watched guys on the ground getting shot at and I can't shoot back because in order for me to shoot back, I got to shoot that building. I don't know who else is in that building. You know, I don't have permission to shoot. So guys on the ground, sorry, you're on your own. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to cheer you on, you know, um, but I can't do much else. But generally speaking, that's that's the rule that we have in a, in a normal fight. And so that's that fundamental difference between close air support. And again, I'll go back to just calling it CCA. Uh, we can do close air support. I've absolutely been given targets by a JTAC, given the whole cleared hot and all that jazz. We can do that, but we don't need it. And that's sometimes very difficult for other services. And again, sometimes even difficult for our own people in the army to understand is that I don't I don't need your permission, dude. You know, this is this is uh this is the wild west out here and there's yep. bad guys and there's good guys. And as long as I can identify that that dude's not good, uh, then I'm going to throw a hellfire at him. Yeah. It's, I think what I'm hearing from you is that it's just so fundamentally different because the air to ground interface for all the other services is sort of coming out of their element, right? They are, mm-hmm. el- they are services in the air arms of the Navy or the Marine Corps We'll take out the Marine Corps because they're a they're particularly different hybrid. Um, you know, when they fight in the air, you wouldn't think at all about having to call for clearance for an air-to-air engagement for a fighter, right? You, there is no right. equivalent to a JTAC 
Yeah, you've right. got the AWACS AWAC or the Hawkeye, but he's giving you the picture. You would never right. do that because you're fighting it in your, in your environment. For you guys in the Army, that ground battle is your environment. So in the yeah, same way, you're not right. waiting for the JTAC. You you see it, you've been trained to it, and this is what you're doing. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way of looking at it. I've never thought of it that way. Yeah, and I think, unfortunately, to our somewhat detriment, the past 20 years of dealing with Iraq and Afghanistan, which, again, for the right reasons, was very controlled. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember my first deployment to Iraq was 2006. I think I talked to a JTAC I don't know, three times. Afghanistan, 2009, 2010, I don't think I never talked to a JTAC. You know what I mean? Like, they yeah. were everywhere. Um, and in my last tour in Iraq uh, was, what, 2018, same thing. I never talked to anybody who wasn't a JTAC. And so I think that that level of control started to seep in and we became very reliant on having JTACs because it was that sort of safety blanket of like, you can't just go out there and shoot bad guys. But you know, then it became this weird, like, I'm out here. I see bad guys. The JTAC is nowhere near me. He's just a dude on the radio, mm-hmm. you know, eating, eating chow hall food back at the FOB. And uh, I'm telling him, hey, I see dudes hiding in bushes and they've got AKs, you know, and you start working up the clearance, you know, they're not there, but I got to get their permission because if I just shoot these dudes randomly, even if they're ISIS, um, I might get in trouble. And so it was a very different experience. It's kind of funny because I have talked to to fighter guys who were in Syria during the early days of, of the, the, the anti-ISIS and it was, it, they were living our life. You know, they mm-hmm. were going out and being told like, hey, if you see dudes with dishkas on the back of their truck, like you're clear to engage, like do your thing and let us know about it later. And every pilot that I've talked to that kind of flew those time periods, they were like, oh, it was awesome. You know, like that was because <laughs> they were so used to being so controlled. And so now tightly controlled. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now it's like, hey, this is Killbox Syria. You know, go find ISIS. Right. Uh, you know, you got to do your due diligence and make sure it's ISIS because I, you know, I hate to say it. I'd rather let an ISIS fighter get away than, than blow up a school bus. Yeah. Um. You know. The, you know. You don't want to let those guys get away, but God, you don't. You, you don't want to make that mistake and and have that live with you. It's it's right. not a good feeling. So, uh. So you got to do your due diligence, but still, the ability to make big boy decisions in the cockpit cannot be overstated. And I think we'll get to this later in the series when we talk about training opportunities and integration and in training systems, because sure. be it you know, Iraq and Afghanistan or, or Syria, which is, you know, not the peer competition, but we've, we've taken on that imprint, right? We've sort of got that on us now, this joint operational capability and maybe in a peer competitions, it's not going to be that way. Maybe it's going to be a really clear sector where the army, you know, the army Corps has this sector. And I mean, we even saw this in the initial invasion of Iraq and then, you know, the MEF or the Marine, uh, the MU or the whatever Marine element there is in a physically different section. Maybe you guys have the Air Force in support. The Marines have the the Navy and the Marine Corps in support. But then again, it might be a mixed environment, even in a, in a uh, peer level war. So we need to be able to train to this stuff. And, and to your point, and I, if for anyone who hasn't been there and I'm not you know I was not doing what you were doing and I wasn't kicking down doors in Iraq or anything like that but you know you're talking about the guy back at the chow hall who's the guy who's clearing you in and you're the guy out there seeing the guy and you're still not cleared to fire like there's a lot more of that sort of I, I hate to say this but apocalypse now sort of are, are you are you serious 
Like, really, that's how we fight a war? Like, there's a lot more of that out there that I think people really realize that it, yeah. it just gets a little weird. I don't know how, well, how else to say it. Tech, technology has is, is absolutely contributed to that. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the, the modern Apache can, can transmit what it's seeing. And so now, you know, Big Duke 6 is back at the talk and he can see what you're shooting at. You know, we used to joke yeah. about this all the time. You know, it's like, hey, this is Big Duke 6. Why, why did you guys use rockets on that engagement instead of the Hellfire? <laughs> you know, and you're, yeah. you're 30 miles away. Um, but those things happen. I mean, they, hell, they happened in Vietnam, right? I mean, you'd yeah. have guys flying overhead and Huey's making calls for the infantry squad down on the ground. You know, part of it's risk aversion. Part of it is... It really is love. You know, there are certain commanders that, they, you know, they're concerned about their dudes and they don't. It's hard to let them, again, get on the school bus. It's hard to let them make big boy decisions because, you know, you want them to make the right decision or you're the guy who I don't want them to make the wrong decision because this is going to reflect poorly on me. So, yeah, technology has certainly contributed to that. But I think what you were saying, I mean, the the future, you know, we we could go back and forth on what we think the future conflict looks like. You know, I think currently the events going on in Ukraine are kind of showing us why why we don't really want to fight like that anymore because yeah. technology kind of prevents us, you know, prevents the the uh, the desert storm slash World War Two that, you know, I think I will tell you this 100 percent. When I was a tanker. Yeah, I wanted another desert storm like that's what right. I wanted because I want open. I want my badass tank against your not so great Russian tank. And because I'm going to win 100 percent of the time. And that's what I think secretly you know, or maybe not secretly, all, you know, at least army officers, they want that again. I don't think we're going to have that again, because if you watch the news, you kind of see that it just doesn't work out that way anymore. Technology is, yeah. is, is too good to, you know, allow that. But in the in the environments where it will happen, we're absolute, absolutely going to be in a joint environment because we all bring something different to the table, you know, and without getting too deep into things that even I heard uh, when I was working, uh, you know, the doctrine side with with JRTC and kind of watching this stuff develop, um, the reliance on, you know, long range precision fires, and and you can you can argue about where those come from. Are they are they ground based? Are they air based? Are they rotary wing? You know, the ability to reach out and touch things far away is huge, and it affects all of us. And so some of us are better at certain parts of that than others. Um, some of us rely on other parts that we don't own you know the army's not a big electronic warfare proponent you know we don't have a lot of that stuff at at least airborne wise but i tell you what when you're rolling in on a target that you know has uh radar defenses it'd be really cool to work with the guy who does have that stuff and so that joint environment is is absolutely the future uh which you know leads it to its own pain because it's it's politics it's it's finances it's who's paying for this um, who's in charge of it, you know, if you can't even imagine. So, yeah, it's a frustrating environment, but it's a it's, it's the one that we find ourselves in, absolutely. You mentioned JRTC just now, and, and we're going to talk, I think, a lot more about that uh, in a, one of the later series episodes as we talk about big exercises. But can you just define that for us really quickly so the listener knows what that is? And then I want to pivot a little bit because you talked about joint fires and how we're going to integrate those. I think that'll come into that episode too. But after defining JRTC, let's talk about the OH-58 and the H-64 specifically in terms of the sensors and weapons you brought that were the component of those joint fires. Yeah, the the Joint Readiness Training Center is one of three combat training centers. Uh, Most people have heard of NTC, 
uh, which is out in uh, California, Fort, Fort Irwin, California, mm-hmm. which is a big desert uh, training area. Joint Readiness Training Center is basically the light infantry equivalent of NTC, uh, and it's located at Fort Polk, Louisiana, so it's kind of swampy, wooded area. Uh, and then you've got the Joint Oh gosh, J- JMRC, I think is what it's called. I, g- I can't remember. We always made fun of them because they weren't they weren't as good as NTC. <laughs> so we, you know, uh, but no, but the, but it's a it's a, a, a another place, but it's out in Germany, and I think they only run like four rotations a year. I'm, I'm sure somebody's yelling at me right now, but but uh, wasn't wasn't as widely used as JRTC and NTC because we do like 12, 13 rotations a year. Uh, but this is a, a a place where a combat brigade with attachments would go to fight laser tag. For, for two weeks. Okay. And so you'd have an infantry, so JRTC, you'd have an infantry brigade show up uh, with all their stuff, and then you'd have a aviation task force, which was basically a mix of lift and attack assets put together, and you'd have all kind of supporting stuff. And they'd go into what we call the box, which is the huge training area, and they would fight a, a, a opposing force, an OP-4, which we had uh, a resident there. It was an infantry battalion that they, they trained and fought like Soviet style. They had you know, Vizmod tanks and stuff. So it made it look like it was a T-72 and things like that. And uh, they would just go out there and fight war games. So it was like a near peer threat uh, environment. Uh, but that that was the Joint Readiness Training Center and st- still is. Uh, just, I don't work there anymore. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we, we were kind of transitioning. When I was there, it was kind of getting back into the near peer threat. But for, of course, for years and years, it was very focused on counterinsurgency type operations. So so the army and, and I think the military at large is, is relearning the lessons of how to fight uh, you know, the, the big Russian bear or, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, the, the, the sort of glory days of the Cold War kind of coming back as far as uh, doctrine and, and techniques. And that's the place where you learn them. Or really, it's the place where you're supposed to prove that you know them. Um, right. And that could be a completely different discussion of training versus validation. Yeah. Uh, those places are supposed to be validation centers and they really become, oh, I've never done this before centers. Uh, that, that that's common to every service, I think, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it, like you said, that's, we could go a whole nother discussion. Maybe we should one day, but uh, yeah, sure. that's not this. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, let's talk about, about your platforms in particular and the fires they brought to the fight and the sensors you use to employ those fires. Sure. Um, so I spent a vast majority of my career flying OH-58s uh, all Again, in the 82nd Airborne, uh, first as a warrant officer and then as a commissioned officer. Did two deployments in the 82nd as a Kiowa guy. Uh, got shot in a Kiowa, so I have mad respect for the aircraft and the damage it could take. Uh, it's a small aircraft, single engine. We used to joke, it's too light to fight, too slow to run. Uh, it was essentially a, a Bell 407 that's been militarized. Most people don't know what it is. Uh, when you tell people you're a Kiowa pilot, then you have to show them a picture, but we're the one with the big ball on top of the rotor system. And that, that ball is, uh, it's called the mast mounted sight. Uh, and it was a big, big eyeball in the sky. And, um, it had a thermal imaging system, a day TV camera, and a laser rangefinder designator. Uh, so initially the OH 58 was designed as a reconnaissance and targeting platform. It was actually sort of, uh, brought to being by the artillery branch because they wanted some sort of forward element. Again, going back to fighting Russians crossing the fold, the gap type thing, is how do we fire these newfangled laser-guided artillery rounds, and how do we fire these these newfangled laser-guided Hellfire missiles uh, without exposing our delicate flesh to return fire? Well, let's put somebody else out there with a laser. <laughs> um, so that's where the Kiowa came to be. And you took these these old reconnaissance helicopters, Vietnam era airframes, 
and threw this uh, technology on them. Uh, but interestingly enough, we were like the first glass cockpit aircraft, uh, I think, in the world, uh, but certainly in the military as, as far as a rotor wing platform. So we had a lot of new technology and it was kind of a test bed for other things that kind of went off. And, you know, you could draw parallels to, well, this piece of equipment eventually made its way to the Blackhawk and blah, blah, blah. So we were a reconnaissance platform. And then uh, you started to have some issues in the Persian Gulf in the late 80s. Iranian gunboats and oil platforms and stuff like that. And so uh, you can read up on Operation Prime Chance, but that is where initially we had uh, 160th had their uh, their little gunships, their little birds, they called mm-hmm. uh, AH-6s, kind of flying out there and, and, and uh, thwarting these Iranian gunboat attacks. But after a while, 160th was, I guess, kind of tired of doing it or they needed to go do something else. And so they said, well, what if we take, what, you know, what can we replace them with? And so they took a couple of these OH-58s and they started to arm them and put different weapon systems on it. And so they have uh, machine guns and, and rockets and, and hellfires uh, and then threw them out there and let them do the work. And they started to do that and it led right into Desert Storm uh, where you still had a mix of armed and unarmed Kiowas and they were doing the reconnaissance and stuff. Uh, but the the modern Kiowa Warrior OH-58 Delta was a uh, max gross weight of 5,200 pounds, which is not a lot. Uh, your car is probably, you know, getting close to that. You know, when, when the aircraft was empty, it was probably about like what a car weighs. And we could carry a mix of weapons. We had two weapons pylons. We would typically carry a seven-shot rocket pod. Uh, arguably, you might have four rockets in it. And then a, a 50 caliber machine gun. Or you might carry a Hellfire launcher with a rocket pod, or you might carry two rocket pods. So it was kind of a mix of weapon systems depending on the situation. And like I mentioned earlier, we did have stingers for a while for self-defense, but we, we got rid of those. Uh, the Hellfire, of course, is about 100 pounds depending on the type of weapon system. It's a laser-guided anti-tank weapon, uh, which we started using in the invasion of Iraq discovered that shooting anti-tank missiles at people didn't work out very well because it just kind of rang their bell and they ran off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we started to develop new types of hellfires, which gets pretty heinous, but you start building like the, the bell of the ball is really the, the Kilo 2 Alpha, which we carried most often, which was a, uh, uh, a tandem warhead with a blast fragmentation sleeve on it. So when it exploded, it sent shrapnel in all directions. And then, of course, it had the tandem warhead, so it could still defeat some armor. Uh, really the, the crowd pleaser. You could use it for just about anything. Uh, you had the November model, which is a thermo barracks. That's good against buildings and caves and things like that. So you could carry uh, one or two of those. Uh, and then, like I said, you carry some rockets, usually high explosive, but you could also carry uh, flechettes, uh, which basically shoot out a wall of, uh, I think it was 1,179. I do not know why I know that number <laughs> or why it's important, but it was taught to us. And by God, that's you remember you it. Need to, yeah. That's information that you need. Okay, that's what I love about <laughs> aviation. It's it's really just a game of trivia. Um, but these little metal darts, which are about uh, like two inches long or so, and it would throw out a bunch of these darts, and uh, you know wasn't good to be on the other end of that. Uh, smoke, Willie Pete, illumination. You know, it's a variety of rocket types that you could fire, and then of course the old fifty caliber. Uh, the the Modus M two fifty caliber, which we eventually did replace with the uh, what's called the M three P. Um, so if anybody knows the old Avenger Humvee, which was a Humvee with a, a turret on the back that had a right. stinger launcher. Yeah. And it looked like something out of a carnival. You know, it was this weird little turret yeah. that you could sit inside. But underslung, a lot of people didn't know this, underslung uh, one of those stinger pods was a 50 caliber machine gun. Um, well, when the Avenger started to go away, 
the Kiowa community, somehow we got our hands on these 50 cals. And so we got these newer 50 cals. They were lighter. They were faster cyclic rate. Um, they were much more reliable. I mean, I honestly hated the M2. It jammed more often than not. But the M3P was very reliable. And if it did break, it was very simple to go into the FARP, which we've discussed, the forward arming refueling mm-hmm. point. Very simple for the armament kids to just unbolt it, pull it off, and put a new one on. The M2, not so much. It was kind of a pain. So that was our weapons load. And then, of course, we generally flew with no doors on, which sucked in the winter. But generally speaking, it was a lot of fun. You get the air blowing at you. And, of course, we'd have our M4s, rifles, up on the mm-hmm. dash. We'd have, like, these holsters for them. Uh, we got pretty good at pulling those out and shooting them from the left side because uh, the pilot, the main guy flying, is on the right seat. So the left seater uh, would, would pull his rifle out on occasions and could brandish it at someone to encourage them to stop doing whatever it is they're doing like stealing uh, concertina wire. You know, I've, yeah. I've certainly broken that up. I've even broken up fist fights <laughs> with guys on the side of the street. That's a different story. Uh, but you can pull out your rifle and, of course, engage targets. We've had quite a few engagements that way. Smoke grenades, throw smoke grenades out the door to mark targets. So it was really this kind of old school Vietnam mentality that still kind of existed in the Kiowa community, coupled with this technology. And, and the thermal system was not great. The Kiowa was never meant to last as long as it did. It was meant to be replaced. So I'll give you an example. 2003, 2004, I'm going through flight school. I get selected for Kiowas, and I get told, yeah, you'll probably be back here in about a year or two to learn the Comanche. And then about a month later, Comanche got canceled. Right. Uh, so, and then, and then what the Army did, understanding that they didn't really want to keep the Kiowa, they took all this money that they saved and poured it into the Apache, which is how you got basically the Echo model Apache and, and all the advancements that have come there. So as Kiowa guys were kind of left, you know, standing in a corner, you know, the music stopped and we didn't have a chair. Um, and so we didn't get a lot of upgrades. Um, mm-hmm. We got a little bit here and there, mostly software type upgrades and stuff. But uh, generally speaking, we were rolling around with a little bit old technology um, and using the Mark One eyeball quite a bit. And, you know, our mission was... It was a great counterinsurgency platform, but it was also a terrible counterinsurgency platform. Like <laughs> the technology didn't really help us, but because it was so small and maintenance was super easy on it compared to everything else, you know, we always maintained a you know ninety five percent you know operational readiness rate versus you know the Apaches, which you know we were hovering around the eighty percent. You know, yeah. just picking a number, but much less. Very easy to deploy, very easy to get around in and and get down low and see stuff. But yeah, so I flew that for several years, you know, kind of off and on. And then while I was away from aviation doing some teaching stuff is when the Army decided to, uh, to get rid of the Kiowa and replace it with Apaches and unmanned systems. So during this time, you know, 2006 time frame, you started to see this real you know, resurgence of, of technology in, in the form of unmanned vehicles all the way down to the, you know, these tiny things that infantry guys carry all the way up to these giant, you know, these global hawks that can fly around the world in 80 days. So the army really kind of went all in on that and said, oh, we're going to we're going to pair these systems with the Apache and the the unmanned uh, assets, which I would argue they haven't really mastered yet. You know, I when I was an Apache squadron, we didn't get to practice it that much. Uh, so it's it's um, there's some challenges there with training when it comes to, to those two things. Uh, but in 2016, uh, I did get uh, a chance to go, you know, I guess reclass, you could say, as an Apache pilot, which unfortunately a lot of good Kiowa pilots kind of got, you know, shown the door or they had to go do something completely different. 
it goes back to money and it goes back to looking at numbers. You know, how do you take so many Kiowa pilots and train them to be Apache pilots, you know, or, or Blackhawk or Chinook because because guys went everywhere. You know, right. I've met Kiowa guys that flew everything. A little bit of a tangent there, if I could just interrupt you for a sure, second. Was, please. was the Kiowa the first, you know, aircraft sunset in the Army inventory in a while? I'm wondering because that sounds a lot like. Yeah. When I was getting right after I was getting commissioned, uh, the A6 started to go away mm-hmm. out of the Navy. And I remember peers of mine, you know, hearing about it and how yeah. the Navy didn't necessarily do that really well. And then they learned and I think they did a much better job with, say, the F-14 or the S-3. But it's it's unfortunate because you're faced with a budgetary decision and you want to do well by guys but in the end the needs of the service come first and you keep pushing on for the mission yeah well when you run your budget a year to year you mm-hmm. know it's it's hard to forecast and it's hard to, to 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 do it you know from a personal standpoint to do it right uh i remember having lunch with an air force guy i met when i was working in dc and we, we had we had lunch and he was a osprey guy but he had been a pavlo guy and same thing, you know, same story. Pavlo was going away. He kind of read the writing on the wall, jumped over to Ospreys, and he had buddies who were like, nah, you know, the Air Force will take care of me. You know, the Air Force will change me over. Yeah, no, the music stopped. You don't have a chair. You're out of here. Yeah. Um, and so that that happened across the board. And of course, you know, I'm away from the the flight line when all this happens. So my assumption is I'm I'm never going to fly again. You know, that was, that was my assumption going in. Uh, but I was lucky and got selected to go fly the Apache. Uh, so in 2015... Got to go back to Fort Rucker and start that process, which, you know, at this point, I'm a major. I've been in the Army. I've been deployed multiple times. Going back to Fort Rucker was very strange, surreal <laughs> feeling You yeah. know, to go back as a student. It was about five months of training to uh, to learn the Apache. We were learning Delta models. And uh, it was kind of the same construct that we described before. You know, you, you learn how to fly it. You learn how to fly it at night. You learn how to use all the, the widgets. And then you learn how to, to shoot it. So the Apache, uh, of course, is a much larger aircraft. Let's see, let's see if I can go back in the memory banks. Max gross weight of about uh, 20,260 pounds, I think, roughly. Um, two engines. So I'd never flown anything with two engines, which sounded scary up until I flew something with two engines. And I was like, oh, this is actually easier because I can lose one and still fly. Right. Versus, you know, the Kiowa, every emergency procedure ended with auto rotate. Uh, <laughs> this one, this one landed, you know, ended with land, you know, and ride it up. So flying the Apache uh, w- was a lot easier in that respect. Much larger aircraft, still very maneuverable, fun to fly fast, especially the Echo model just loves to go fast. It's the first time you fly it, you, you actually have a hard time landing it because it just it's like it just wants to keep going. But the Apache is very different because, one, the way it's designed, you know, it's a tandem cockpit. The guy sitting in front is the co-pilot gunner. Both are rated aviators. Both are pilots. We would just swap seats. You know, I was like, hey, I want to sit front seat today or, or vice versa. I think the biggest thing, and of course, if you ever watch the documentary called Firebirds, you understand how the <laughs> Apache works with uh, night vision. So you've got this cluster of sensors right on the nose. So again, on the Kiowa, we had it on top, but this one we've got on the nose. And that's your TADS, your target acquisition designation system uh, th- that has a day TV, a FLIR, forward-looking infrared, and a laser designator. And then on right on top of it, there's a little kind of bug eye, and that's called the PENVIS, Pilot Night Vision System. And that's another FLIR. And what's really cool about both these systems is you wear this special helmet. I used to call it the last Starfighter helmet because it just was massive. And it had little sensors so it could tell which way you were turning your head. 
And if you flip the right switches, those sensors would move with your head. Uh, you also wear this monocle, uh, which again, Firebirds will tell you all about, but you wear this monocle and you flip the right switches and that FLIR picture gets put into that monocle, which is very disconcerting for some people because now you're basically watching TV on something in front of your right eye. Your left eye is looking at whatever your left eye happens to be looking at at the time. Uh, so making that transition between the two can be very challenging uh, in the beginning. But, you know, you learn how to fly that way. You learn how to basically put your right eye 10 feet in front of you on the nose of the aircraft and make it look through FLIR. And you turn your head and the sensor turns with you and you look over there and now you turn your head over here and you look there. It became very cool once you got used to it because you could essentially look through the aircraft, you know. So if you're you're descending, you can look down. Your left eye is looking at your knee, but your right eye is looking at the ground, you know, in front of the aircraft. Mm. So, you know, if you're like me and you're lazy, you just close your left eye and just look at <laughs> your right eye. And then a front seater would use the TADS and he could use it the same way or he could use it on his uh, screen in front of him. And uh, he's got all kind of controls to manipulate and he could uh, move the sensor around, laze targets and uh, engage them with the weapon system. So the Apache carried basically the same weapons. It carried rockets, just a lot more, uh, carried Hellfires, just a lot more. Uh, and then it had a 30 millimeter gun, which is uh, slung under the chin of the aircraft, basically sitting kind of right below the, the front seater. And uh, just like the sensors, you can flip a switch and make that turn with your head as well. Uh, which is, I cannot ex express how cool that is the first time <laughs> you do it. Uh, flip a switch, look at something, put your crosshairs from your iHads on the target, pull the trigger, and then just watch that thing go away. Or if it misses, maybe just move your head just a little bit to the left or right and make the rounds land where you want. You know, it was an aircraft, again, designed to sort of hover and throw Hellfires, again, with a Kiowa or somebody in front of you lazing those in. Not really suited for the counterinsurgency fight but you know you make it work a lot of fun a lot of power a lot of capability to get into places that we couldn't as a kiowa as far as a like an altitude standpoint but not as maneuverable and and nimble as the kiowa so it was a trade-off you know you couldn't you couldn't shoot your rifle out the door uh but you did have air conditioning so that that was a trade-off yeah i mean i don't know what else to say but you know people ask me all the time well which did you like better and honestly, I loved them both. I mean, I had a great time. I spent a vast majority of time flying to Kiowa. I got about 2,000 hours in the Kiowa, and I probably got uh, 400 hours maybe in the Apache. Mm -hmm. uh, I did do one short tour in Iraq with it, but I didn't get to, to fire anything in anger uh, on that one with the Apache. But I loved them both. They both brought different things to the table. Yeah, they're just both great platforms. Okay, and, and I can understand not having a favorite there because... They're, it sounds like they're so different. You're, it's apples and pears yeah. or maybe apples and bananas even. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. A couple things, just because I have a feeling we'll get listener questions. Some people probably already know this. Uh, why did you fly with the doors off on the, on the Kiowa? I think, well, one, with the doors on, they were very, they weren't awesome. <laughs> um, okay. You know, the plexiglass gets kind of cloudy, you know, um, Plus, it's a very claustrophobic cockpit. I mean, it's it's a small, you know, we'd have Velcro on our shoulders. It was routine to get our shoulders stuck to each other. You know, you're just kind of like ripping, okay, yeah, you're, you know, ripping it off each other. Yeah. So it's a very tight cockpit. When you're, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a bodybuilder, but I'm a big guy. You know, I'm six foot four. I take up a lot of space. And so having that door there was, was inconvenient. You couldn't really see very well out of it. Of course, again, you couldn't shoot. You couldn't throw smoke grenades. So it just limited your overall capability as a scout. 
Now, did I put it on when it was super cold in Afghanistan? Absolutely. And did okay. people in my community make fun of me for doing it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as I always told my guys, you know, because I tell my crew chiefs, hey, put the doors on tonight, you know, and because, oh, yeah. sir, you can't put your, your doors on, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I say, look, I might need to shoot my M4 tonight. I absolutely 100% will be cold. Right. So I'm going to go with, you know, the priority there that I don't like to be cold. But yeah, generally speaking, we, we that that is why, you know, there's no like doctrinal reason or anything like that. Okay. And I guess the other thing, of course, is apart from the the weather, it provides you no protection. It's not like it's armored. It's not going to stop anything. Oh, yeah. And yeah, look, you know, if it's like Humvees. It's sheet metal. Yeah. I mean, I when I got to Iraq, when I was training to go to Iraq, was right on the cusp of that transition to armored Humvees. And prior yeah. to that, it was doors off because not only did it not do anything, but that door metal became shrapnel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you're you're flying around in a coke can. I mean, there's there's yeah. a tiny bit of armor that I can tell you doesn't work because I have holes in my yeah. body from rounds that went through that armor and hit me. Um, yeah. So you know, it, it's is it going to stop like a basic AK-47 round? Sure, if it hits the right spot, but. You know, like in my case, if they shoot armor piercing rounds, well, it's going to pierce that little bit of armor. So, yeah, your your number one defense uh, in those aircraft are is speed and maneuverability and just just not being in a place to get shot. Right. Uh, I think and, and same with the Apache. I think a lot of people look at the Apache and they think that it's this big, you know, it's a flying tank. Again, 20,000 pounds sounds like a lot. You know, an M1 tank is 70 tons. Right. Right. So uh, it's a very different animal. Um, are there places that's armored? Yes. But uh, there's plenty of guys flying Apaches that have also been shot in the cockpit, you know, mm-hmm. uh, multiple uh, that I can think of off the top of my head. So so they're not they're not they're not like an A-10 in as much as, you know, everyone talks about the flying bathtub. But I'm pretty sure an A-10, you know, I'm not an A-10 guy, but I'm pretty sure the whole A-10 ain't armored either. You know, right. it's, it's an airplane. It can't be. Right. <laughs> exactly. Fly very well. Exactly. So. All right. Then the other question is, you mentioned in the Kiowa, you know, or anything you guys fly that's not a tandem cockpit that the pilot's on the right, the co-pilot's on the left. Why is that? I've heard I've heard like myth, legend, lore, but I don't know if it's true. Well, I don't you know, I mean, I know functionally why, like, but then I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg. Helicopters just across the board, at least Western world, the, the pilot is the is in the right seat. And then, you know, you go to the fixed wing world, the pilot is in the left seat. I, I don't know where that started or why. Maybe maybe I'm a dullard for not knowing that. But, uh, yeah, I have no idea. And then, of course, you know, your traffic patterns are different. But, again, I don't I think that's a result of where the seat is. I don't think we put the seats okay. because of the traffic pattern. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know why. Interesting. So, uh, yeah, and I don't either. Uh, it's the one thing I heard, and I have no idea if this is even an accurate statement, is you know, the base statement is that the early helicopters had um, the collective was in the center between the two seats, uh, mm. whereas in and there was only one for the two pilots, whereas the cyclic, they each had their own and pilots who were transitioning from being used to, you know, sort of throttle in the left and stick in the right. were like, well, yeah. I'm sitting on the right. Don't know if it's true, but I yeah. guess it'll just I mean, continue to be sense. a mystery. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that yeah. that actually makes sense. Um yeah, no, I, I could see that. That's probably okay. true. <laughs> we'll go All right. So uh, we've talked about Army Flight School. We've talked about how you get commissioned into aviation, Army aviation in particular. We've talked about learning to fly and the idiosyncrasies of, 
of helicopters. We've talked about the structure of the army and how you guys fit in. Talked about the platforms, touched on some stuff we're going to talk about later in the series when we really start to get into how we put this all together in a joint environment and more importantly, how we train to this in a joint environment. Uh, is there anything I've left out? Anything you'd like to add? No, I. Th- you, you made a comment a while ago about, uh, uh, you know, drinking from the fire hose and, and it just made it reminded me of something. Where we went to flight school, the the administrative company headquarters, uh, I believe it was Bravo Company, First Battalion, One Forty Fifth Aviation. That's where that's where your administrative headquarters was as a flight school student. And there was this giant rock. I don't know where it came from. It probably used to be a tiny rock, but then after layers and layers <laughs> of paint, because every class would paint it um, and paint something on it. And I do remember it wasn't my class, but I remember a class painted uh, 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 SpongeBob. Squarepants, you know, cartoon mm-hmm. of of sp- spraying the 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 starfish guy Patrick or whatever with a fire hose, and you know, I think it was a scene from one of the cartoons or something. But uh, it reminded me of that because it's exactly the point that they were making is that, like this is us, you know, just sucking yeah. down this stuff. And I think that's if there's no other commonality between the Air Force, Army, Navy, Marine Corps pilots, I think it's that we all put our lips right on that fire hose at some point and just sucked it down because. You know, you just take a normal guy. Like I have a, a good friend of mine who's going through right now. You know, he's a young guy. He's going through his private pilot's license, and that that's just a lot of stuff in and of itself. Now you're adding all this other technology and other stuff, and and you know, there's a timeline. The military expects you to be done in a certain time. I mean, yeah, they'll recycle you, but after a while, they're going to stop recycling you, and so there's this pressure to get it done and and all this stuff. So you're you're absolutely sucking the 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 fire hose down with uh with this training but once you get through it you know you look back at it fondly a lot of it's a blur um and it's it's a great way to learn because they've got it wired down tight you know you may not appreciate it at the time and you may not think that is the best way of doing it and it maybe it isn't but it's still structured in such a way that you're going to get through there and you're going to you're going to know what you're supposed to know you may not know what you think you should know but you're going to know what you're supposed to know and then you're going to get out and you're going to learn the rest. And, and hopefully you learn the rest before you deploy. But I've seen guys that came straight out of flight school, deployed overseas, and started getting after it right away. Um, and they did fine. All right. Well, thanks, Casmo. I appreciate it. It's been uh, very instructive to me, very interesting and illuminating. A lot of stuff in there that I didn't know beforehand. And I just really appreciate your time and appreciate the knowledge you've imparted. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. But uh, look forward to, to doing the rest of them. Yeah, absolutely. We will definitely be talking later on later topics. All right. Thank you. And we'll see you guys next time. Okay. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. If you want to hear more from Casmo, you can tune into his podcast, Low Level Hell, on your favorite podcast provider. On the next episode, we're closing out the flight school portion of the series with Air Force F-16 pilot John Rain Waters. Until then, keep your head on a swivel and get in the fight. Fights On has been made possible by a contribution from Cubic Corporation. Truth and Training, Cubic LVC. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow.